Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by USA-primed Frederick's Canvas. Supporting artists for 150 years, primed in Atlanta, Georgia, with the widest variety of primed and unprimed cottons and linens on the market. I've been using Frederick's for a long, long time, and it's always been a great canvas to work on in the studio. You can find Frederick's in your local art store or at fredericksprintcanvas.com. Sound and Vision is also supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA degree, and a three-year certificate program focus on experimental learning and sustained studio courses. Both programs invite students to focus on painting or sculpture, with drawing as an integral foundation for all creative production. Each semester begins with a two-week drawing or sculpture marathon to generate momentum and expand one's range of strategies for future studio work. Since its inception, the New York Studio School has emphasized rigorous learning through direct experience. Learn about scholarship opportunities, schedule a tour, and ask questions by emailing info at nyss.org. The school welcomes applications for fall 2020 full-time study through nyss.org. And Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden creates the best artist materials that artists can buy. You can find them in just about any art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Colleen Smith is an interdisciplinary artist born in Riverside, California in 1967 and grew up in Sacramento. She earned a BA in Creative Arts from the San Francisco State University and an MFA from UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. Her work reflects upon the everyday possibilities of the imagination. Her films, objects, and installations have been featured in exhibitions at the Studio Museum of Harlem, Houston Contemporary Art Museum, the Yerba Buena Center for Art, the New Museum in New York, D21 Leipzig and Decade in Berlin, She's had solo shows for her films and installations at The Kitchen, the MCA in Chicago, Three Walls in Chicago, and the Whitney Museum. Colleen is the recipient of several grants and awards, including the Rockefeller Media Arts Award, Creative Capital Film Video Award, Chicago Three Arts Grant, and the Foundation for Contemporary Arts Grant, the Chicago Expo Artadia Award, and the Rauschenberg Residency. Colleen currently teaches at CalArts. Her current solo show at the Whitney Museum called Mutualities, the artist's first solo show in New York, presents two of Colleen's films, Sojourner and Pilgrim, each in a newly created installation environment, along with a new group of drawings collectively titled Fire Spitters. I spoke to Colleen from her place in Los Angeles for a talk about film, music, Too Much High Definition, Alice Coltrane, Still Lifes, The Future, and much more. Many thanks to the Whitney Museum for helping facilitate this conversation. Here's me in New York talking to Colleen from Los Angeles. Super busy today. Are you good? Oh, yeah. It's a, It's been um, a mix. Uh, I had a busy, busy morning shipping off chairs for a show that opens in 11 days. 11 days? You have a show up now. <laughs> you doubling down? 
Yeah, the show at the Whitney was a, a wonderful surprise. This was a show that was planned, and now I'm 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 like rushing around trying to get it together. So I was yeah. in the studio this morning shipping stuff off, and then this afternoon I went to go see some art just to blow off some steam after getting that part done. Um, nice. So it was actually a nice afternoon. Yeah. So you spent the day in LA. Is it nice weather? Oh my gosh, it's perfect right now. I don't mean to rub it in, but gosh, it's it's that like, you know, 72 degrees, sunny, oh. cool breeze, warm sun kind of day. I mean, that's that's why you go to LA, right? It, it really is. <laughs> I mean, that weather, I mean, it hasn't been that bad here this winter. Like we haven't had that much snow, which is odd, but yeah. but yeah, that sounds really nice about now. Yeah. But you were in Chicago for a while, right? Yeah, for uh, seven years. Brutal. Chicago. I mean, I love Chicago, but the weather. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a native Californian, uh, and I'd only lived in Boston for one winter. And when I lived in Boston, I was really irked because I kept looking at the weather reports, and Chicago was actually warmer than Boston almost every day of the <laughs> I was like, why am I in this city when I could be in Chicago? Yeah, that's salt in the <laughs> wound. <laughs> after that, I was like, Chicago, no problem. But it actually, after seven winters, it started to get to me a little bit. Yeah. So I started thinking about being really old, and I was looking at old people on that ice, and I thought, oh, my gosh, how do they do it? So, I, I'm starting to, I'm getting to the age to where I'm starting to understand why people retire to Florida. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. You don't have to shovel. No shoveling, no slipping, no fear of falling and cracking your head open. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so you grew up in, did you grow up in Southern California? Is that right? In California, in Sacramento. Oh, in Sacramento. Yeah, that's right. How was your, how was your childhood? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually uh, idyllic, I would think. I mean, I grew up in this, um, multicultural suburb um, that was designed by this modernist architect uh, Eichler. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a public school with all kinds of kids and um, got you know an adequate education. Um, we had wonderful teachers. Uh, um, Were you into art in school? Like was it? I, a I got I got roped in the music like California public schools were amazing before uh, the property tax situation happened here and um, they like they were just like you didn't really no one really asked you they were like what instrument do you want to play at around fourth grade right it wasn't if you wanted to it was which yeah. one <laughs> yeah and then they would hand you an instrument and like tell you to take it home and practice so I got a cello nice eight. yeah and i played it until i was about 22 or so yeah oh, that's great so was it were you in orchestra in school i was in like the school orchestra and then this extracurricular youth orchestra and then me and three of my friends high school friends had this side gig as a string quartet and we played weddings for cash nice yeah well growing up in the house what was the music situation Oh, my dad loves the blues. My okay. mom loves the cool wave. <laughs> Wait, what's the cool wave? Like I just at Christmas time, just imagine Kenny G on. Oh, okay. Fleek, like oh my gosh. Um, smooth. 
She likes it smooth. My dad likes the blues a lot. Um, and my brother played the drums and he was really into fusion jazz. So I would just nice. hang in his room while he was playing, listening to Miles Davis and Stanley Clark and Paco, <laughs> Jaco Pastorales and like yeah. crazy experimental, like Wayne Shorter. Herbie. Herbie. Yeah. So I feel like my brother, and on top of that, also like Earth, Wind and Fire and the Beatles and like, you know, he played, yeah. he listened to everything. So he was my music education. Well, that's great. I mean, it's such a formative, you know, sort of creative, I mean, I'm super into music and played music and it's been a big part of my life. And I have a, a you know, an addiction to uh, paralleling the, the sort of path of visual art and music. I think there's so much, there's so many similarities and it's very different in a way as well, but you know. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm obsessed with this actually. It's like I'm, I'm developing a class to teach at CalArts that's kind of about it. It's, I'm like, um, you know, like, I, I just think for me, music is the model for almost everything I make. It's time-based, so it has a lot of, it's, and film is so dependent on music, you know what I mean? So yeah. for me, it's not as if I'm making paintings. Right. Which I think is maybe far, far flung from music, but like film and music are actually just, they were made for each other and feed off of each other and, for me, whenever I'm looking for a structure for a film, I look to music for the structure. I don't even think about narratives or novels or anything. I look at me. I think about music right away. Right. It has such a um, a built-in narrative. It's it's so much a key of right. you know of of kind of like moving images and you know I do I'm a I paint, but I also do animation. And animation adding that sound element to the images makes such a huge difference it changes everything and it does and they're just um yeah and yeah i just think it's really crucial and i also think that it's sort of like the like music and film are they both sort of affect you in non-narrative ways in ways you're not aware of while you're experiencing them and that's like actually what i'm really interested in is the way that music doesn't actually the structure and the form, it actually has a shape. Music has a shape, you know? Definitely. And like, that's what I'm interested in, in terms of how do I make a film? The film I want the film to have that same rhythm and shape and form. And, yeah, and I remember, I, yeah. sorry, I was just going to say, I remember the first time I've seen an Anthony Braxton CD. Yeah. And his compositions were shapes, you know? Yeah. It blew my mind. Absolutely. Yeah, Sun Ra was talking about that in the early 50s. He literally has this little, um, uh, there's a snippet of sound that I found of him rehearsing his band. And he, he interrupts them to lecture them about the shape of sound. He talks about like diamond note, uh, diamond shaped notes and heart shaped notes. And like, they sound different and you got to play them different. And yeah. he, he was just hammering them about like, you're not playing the right shape. Right. Wow, yes, that's it. It's all about the form. That's it. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I've had some transformative moments looking at certain, experiencing certain pieces of art, but it's a, in a specific way, you know? But I, if I think back of in my sort of path, some of the most impactful moments of kind of wonder and inspiration have been through that kind of music. You know, I remember seeing... 
going to a friend's apartment in school and seeing space as the place for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what is going on here? <laughs> but I loved it, you know? Like, it was like rocket number nine, and I was like, yeah, I want to take that trip, you know? It was just such an amazing thing. Yeah. And it is, it's still like, I find that film still like mysterious and um, so funny. Like, yeah. and, and also fraught, you know, like so fraught with like the politics of the time. Definitely. You know, as you grow older and you revisit the film, you're like, oh, wow, there's some really, really tricky dynamics going on in this. And I, I you know what I mean? And yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that whole tying in of, wonder which is such a beautiful kind of um you know thing with young people especially like that creativity is tied to imagining and wondering about what could be but that sense of wonder being fueled by escapism of the fact that things are so bad like you know the conditions are so poor that i want to be on another planet where that doesn't exist you know Right. So it's, this, it's a combination of beauty and like tragedy at the same time. I also think of it more, I think of it more as, and, and then escapism as a form of resistance. Like if you think about a human being like Sun Ra being born in the year 1913, mm-hmm. and you're literally only have been um, understood to be a human being for uh, less than like three decades. Yeah. And um, you know what I mean? And um, and you're the whole, everything in the world is sort of um, structured to undermine your existence. So instead of saying, you know, instead of saying, I'm a man, you say, I'm an alien. You right. just, this world just is, I, I refuse it. I reject it. I am not of it. I am something else. And the, to use the imagination as this actual tool of resistance to produce a universe that you can live in, that you can bear, that you can actually produce yourself in spite of the environments in which you exist. And then he, and then like, I just think that's, so for me, I never thought of it as escapism. I literally thought of it as like resist, is like the way we imagine ourselves determines everything about how we move forward and how the decisions we make, you know? Right. Yeah, it's like that ideology, it was foreign to him. So he was an alien, you know. Yeah, he's it's like, like it makes sense. Yeah. A, a rare occasion of a beautiful xenophobia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or just like, this is a, the, like, we're supposed to be human, but nobody here, if this is what human is, then I'm not human. I'd right. like to reject it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, and I mean, I, I guess I, I would think that that ties back through the tradition of blues, too, of this, you know, of of sort of, I mean, that's been sort of romanticized in a way, I guess, this idea of of expression and creativity being born out of struggle. But I think mm-hmm. that happens a lot in, in various different forms and, and amounts. You know what I mean? Like just the struggle in the studio to like get through, you know, a painting or a sculpture or a film. You know what I mean? And it's Restrictions and, and ad, ad, you know, and uh, ad, adverse conditions produce inventiveness, right? Yeah, so, definitely. Really. Well, in the creative process, so like when you were in high school, right, you're in, mu- you're doing music and you're, you're being creative, but what was the path? Like when you were getting ready to graduate, what were your ideas about what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go and, you know, your future? Oh, I was absolutely clueless. I had no, I had nothing. I had no idea. And I, you know, um, I think public school is really great because literally no one is paying attention to you. 
There's nobody <laughs> telling you. Like no one helped with the college applications. There's no, there is no advice. There is no guidance. You're on your own. So I found my way to a college with a music, with a cello scholarship. And um, so I had to play cello like every day for hours. And that's when I realized that I wasn't a musician. Um, really, that that revealed I, itself? I mean, I was surrounded by real musicians and they actually, I, I mean, it just kind of came easy to me. Like I could, I could read the music and I could play it. And then if I practice long enough, I could make it sound okay. But mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't a, mu a musician is another thing like this ability to think through music and produce thoughts through music. I don't have that. And yeah. I started to realize it when I was with those who did. And, um, but that was paying for my education. Meanwhile, I'm taking all these classes over in the film department and I'm just loving like playing with film and apertures and film stocks and, um, watching movies and learning about shots and all this stuff. And I was just doing that as a kind of, um, those were my electives. I was just like trying to enjoy myself of, like for one class a week. Right. Um, well, did you, did you sort of catch the bug? I, I mean, I, I made, I made something there like this weird slide thing. And I loved the process. I loved the process of making it. I loved using the camera, writing the story designing the set, getting the actors. I loved the process. I loved like seeing it happen. I even didn't mind that it was a, a, a failure. Like I didn't mind because it had been so amazing to go through it. I felt like right. I, I had been so enriched by actually making it that I just wanted to do it again and maybe do it a little better. Um, but then I ended up dropping out of that school. Um, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. It was in Orange County. It was just, is a different time. Orange County's flipping, it's turning blue. But at that time, it was super <laughs> red. Yeah. And I couldn't hang. So, yeah. I, um, in long story short, wound up at San Francisco State and, um, again, didn't have a clue. But I had spent like six months in London just sort of like reading books, watching plays, listening to music. So, I went to the creative arts department and got into a film program. And that was it. Like I, I, and I actually, that was an accident. Like applying to the film program was a total fluke. And um, thank goodness they took me, took me in. And that was the beginning of like a real education with real incredible teachers and, and um, like schoolmates that I'm still friends with. And they're yeah. all like, still blowing my mind, you know. Is, um, is that when you started filming Dry Longso? Uh, no, no. I started doing that actually after my first year in film school at UCLA. After graduating from San Francisco State, which is like hardcore experimental, anti-narrative, for very uh, legitimate political reasons, school. They train you to resist the narrative there. Oh, really? Yeah, I realized. Did you? Did you were you into it? Uh, I loved it because I because actually everything the reasons that they were anti-narrative were the, the things that troubled me about movies. Like my whole attraction to movies was that I, I, I wanted to like them. I loved the world building and I hated, the, they, the movies always made me feel so bad. And then once I realized what was happening in the movies, I understood why they were making me feel bad. It was a language and a syntax. It's the way the camera is. It's the way people are presented, lighting, all these things. Yeah. I was like, oh, those are just things you can control. So anyone can control them. So they don't have to do this. They can do something else. And that was like, that was the thing that got me into it. 
Right. But, uh, but at school State, so I was into the experimentalism and the breaking apart and structuralism and resistance and narrative. I love that. And I still, I'm, I'm right back there now. But I realized that I didn't know how to do that other thing. And how do you, how do you undo something unless you really understand how it works? So that's right. what I went to UCLA. They train you how to do proper directing. And then right at the time that I went to UCLA was right at that time when all those filmmakers were claiming to have made feature films for $7,000. Right. And I got a grant for $35,000. So I literally thought, oh my God, I can make five feature films. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't work out. And now I didn't know that that wasn't true, that they weren't telling the truth. So right. like between Spike Lee and Robert Rodriguez and what's that other guy, Smith, Kevin Smith. Oh yeah. They tricked me. They all tricked me. Yeah. And I, um, so I went to film school and I was like, I showed up, I was like, Hey, I just got this big grant. I want to make a feature. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. So I waited, I did the first year of film school and then I went back up to Oakland and shot it. And then I spent the, the next two or two years there in film school editing it. Yeah. But yeah. it was really well received, right? Yeah. I mean, all things considered, considering, yeah, it was a total shock. You know, I was just grateful that anybody wanted to watch it. And yeah, it's kind of, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing or how you feel, but I mean, I saw it on YouTube. Is that a good thing? Oh, uh, or is that a bad thing? <laughs> it's on YouTube. <laughs> it's on YouTube. I'll, I'll look that up. Um, I love how like people get so enthusiastic and want to share everything. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> when I find things on YouTube, I'm so happy about it. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it actually doesn't have proper distribution right now, and I'm working on that. Um, but uh, it should not be on YouTube. Okay. Well, I didn't. Let's pretend I saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can. It used to be like. Um, as recently as six years ago, you could go on eBay and buy a VHS tape for like 33 cents. Oh, man. Remember yeah. VHS? Yeah. It's actually a really nice copy. VHS is really, I still think it's a really good, better than DVDs. Yeah. Fuzzy, but like more durable. It's like an old record. It's got the crackle. Exactly. It's got the yeah. crackle, but it's, it's got the warmth. Warm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how much of that is nostalgia, but you know. When I see an old video like that, it really brings me back. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything now is beyond high definition. Oh, it's more than your eye can actually see. Like, like 4K sees more than the human eye can see. It's yeah, so it's like it's confusing. It's yeah. just too real. Yeah. <laughs> it's and it's like, also, I feel like it's like abrades my eyeballs. Like, I feel like sandpaper is on my eyeballs when I look yeah. at 4K. I agree. It's doing, I'm sure it's doing something bad to our eyes. Oh, I'm certain of it. I just bought a 4K camera. I mean, that's how long I've been resisting it. But I finally, I realized there are some perks. So I'm going yeah. to go for it. Yeah. Well, one quick question about the um, experimental part of the, the early film school. When we talk about experimental, we is it like Brackage and Richter and, you know, or... You know, oh. like, or is it more narrative, but just like, like new wave or something? You know what I mean? Like, or is it the whole gambit? Oh, we had to do the whole shebang bang, of course. Like, it, I, I wish that there was a film program somewhere in the world that didn't teach brackish, but that's not the case. <laughs> so, of course, there's that. 
but there's also like the um wow i'm totally spacing out on names but the structuralists like john smith and mm-hmm. um i want to say hampton but it's not hampton it's that other guy frampton peter frampton that's peter a frampton. that's like a guitar player the but top that- box <laughs> the same name but anyway I didn't know he made movies <laughs> but then my teacher this is like a like super pivotal deeply influential i had two teachers in that program trinity minha who's mm-hmm. sort of like a post-structuralist filmmaker and lynn hirschman gleason who has finally gotten her due as a feminist uh, video maker and artist and um i had class i had trinity minha for two years and lynn hirschman for one semester and they completely exploded my like they just challenged me they just they just absolutely took the the work i was doing which was so clueless they took it completely seriously and insisted that i make it better and um and i paid attention to them i really did and um, i'm still paying attention you know what i mean yeah that's what you want in a teacher you know yeah, I mean, Minha was bringing in um, like fresh English translations of Barthes and um, Foucault uh, when you couldn't really get them. Like you couldn't yeah. get a book of the translations. She was bringing in these like like mimeographs and Xeroxes that had been copied 10 times and forcing us to read them. And no one was pleased about that. We didn't know what no. that it was. You know what I mean? Yeah, we totally. How to read it. So she started reading it to us in class. That's how serious she was. And I'm, right. I'm eternally grateful to her for that. Eternally. Yeah. yeah. So, so you went to UCLA to get the more formal training. Yeah, right? I wanted the classical Hollywood narrative training. I wanted to understand how it worked, how you do it. And was, uh, it was it a great experience? Or? Yeah, actually, yeah. I, it. I, um, I went there, you know, because of the history, like Charles Burns and... Larry Clark and Julie Dash in particular. Yeah. Because of them, I went there and I wasn't I I wasn't disappointed. They were not there, but there was this crazy Eastern bloc, like Russian and Hungarian and Polish, Croatian. <laughs> like highly trained, highly skilled uh individuals training us. And that's what it was. It was training. It was like I mean I we had this class with this Polish dude, Jersey. And he would like play any random film, Hollywood film, and he'd just scream out at every shot what lens it was. 25, 125, 250. It was crazy. And it's I like going to the gym for <laughs> for cinema. So good. <laughs> so, I, like, so, and I, I was a problem student, you know, because I was making this feature even though it was against the, the rules. Yeah. I, I just soaked up everything I could. I just threw the feature. The feature was my film school. I learned how to make a film with that film. So when I look at it, all I see are the mistakes and blunders and like poor judgment, things I compromised on that I shouldn't have. And, you know, things I, um, I just, I didn't know I should fight for because they would haunt me 30 years later. But, um, <laughs> but it was like the thing I, I like learned on, you know? Yeah, what well, is like a, a certain... I think magic in that early stuff. I mean, if I think about the paintings I was doing in grad school or even undergrad for that matter, I I would feel the same way. Like there's, oh geez, what was I thinking there? But there was an energy and a sort of freedom to it in a way. Right. You know, kind of like a blind optimism that I'm going to make this work, even though, you know, you don't have the, the repetitions, you know? Right. I also think, you know, like, 
I wasn't really able to show that film to my teachers because it was against the rules to make right. it. So I was making it in a vacuum. And in a weird way, that was, it was both terrible. It would have been a better, better film if I had help, but it was also great because I just thought like nobody cared. So I just put it together. I just finished it just to get it yeah. done. You know what I mean? Like right, right. when I finally once started showing it to people, they're like, you could fix this. You should fix this. You should reshoot that. I was already too exhausted. So I just couldn't, yeah. but I would have if I'd been in proper school. And I'm, I'm just so glad that I couldn't and that I just got it done. You know what I mean? Definitely. Imagine all the angles you would have had for critique. Right. It just would have been be spinning. He would be, yeah. I teach it never would have gotten finished. I'm just not sure. I'm like, is this helpful? Or is this what, is what we're doing helpful? Are we helping? I don't know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. It's I'm a big question. The process. I'm trying to trust it. Right, right. <laughs> so when you graduated, I mean, what, what happened next? Oh, How did Chicago come about? Oh, man, years later. Jeez. I mean, I... um. I tried to have a film career, but it just didn't go well. I just couldn't, I couldn't make it happen. And the truth is in retrospect that I never wanted a film career. Um, I wanted to make films, but I didn't want to be in the film business. Um, and so I started teaching and then long story short, ended up in Chicago without a teaching job, but just a residency. And that was sort of like the best year of my life, like living in Chicago, doing residencies, uh, living in like other people's apartments, <laughs> yeah. bicycle, trying to meet as many creative people as I could, listening to Sun Ra. Um, yeah. You know, it was like... Um, what was, year? What year was this? That was 2008 now. 2008. No, no, two th sorry, 2010 was the first residency, first time I got there, which is 10 years ago now. Yeah. Um, yeah, wow. And then, um, and then I moved there officially, formally, in the fall, like a, a year and a half later. And, um, and I just, I sp I'd spent a summer there trying to, uh, trying to do this project that required a lot of help from people, so I had to get to know a lot of people. So by the right. time I moved there, I just felt like I already kind of knew folks. Like I kind of had a sense of how that city like what it had to offer. Yeah. What a great music city. Oh, it's so, I mean, I, I really miss it here in LA, which is also a great music city. Um, it's just a different feel. It's a different feel and a different kind of listening here. Yeah, totally. Like in Chicago, people show up and they really listen, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I go and I'm like, what is everybody doing? I don't, Ross G is spinning. Does anybody... That's Ross G. <laughs> rest, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Right, right. Um, that, I mean, I was like, I couldn't believe I was actually getting to hear Miss Ben, and 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 people were just like, "Ho hum." Yeah, like whatever. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I was so confused. As I, I literally, I could have genuflected. I was so in awe, you know. But um, yeah, I wonder if that has something to do with just the environment and the climate and all that stuff. Because like in Chicago, I feel like. A lot of times when you're, I mean, I know it's not winter every day of the year, but a lot of times it is cold and people huddle in these clubs and these little bars and, yeah. you know, it's kind of music warms you up in a way, you yeah. know? I think there's, there, that's a lot of it. I love the way in Chicago people show up. Like it could be a blizzard, but if you're having a party, yep. knock on the door and in they come. Um, right. 
So there is that there. And that is certainly not the case in LA. Right. Um, well, everything's so spread out in LA too. You know, Chicago, it feels like you could just get from this place to that place and just check the, out a show, you know? Yeah, because of the trains for sure. I actually found like, what I loved about Chicago is it was familiar. Like it's, it's definitely a post-industrial city. It's built for cars. So it felt like LA to me. I understood yeah. the city. I understood it's super neighborhoody like LA, enclaves. Like, you know, if you live on the north side, you don't go to the south side. If you live on the south side, you don't go up there. Like, you know what I mean? East yeah. It's like LA is just like that. Maybe for different reasons, but it's just like that. Um, right. So I kind of understood it. But it was just a fertile place because of that, because of this history, because there's this, because of the redlining in Chicago was so extreme and severe. There is still this intense concentration of African American culture in one place. So on yeah. one block, you have upper middle class people, and you have a housing project. You have uh, two different churches. You have, you know what I mean. You have yeah. everything on one block. So I could literally just sit on my stoop, and and just soak in people making culture all around me in this way that I'd never experienced in California. Right. Uh, and that was actually the food I seemed to have needed. And I just felt like I, between that and spending time in New Orleans, I felt like I had this idea about like a way of making things that started to make sense. You know? Yeah. Well, when, when did New Orleans happen? Oh, um, a couple of years before, uh, Paul Chan invited me to make a film down there. And on his behalf, he didn't want to make a film. He was busy directing a play. And so he gave me his filmmaking money or video making money. And I made this crazy sci-fi video. Um, and I still think this is one of the best things I've ever made. And I am literally the only person who thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Like a lot of times I make work and it, it, it takes like literally 15, 20 years for someone to see it and be like, this is, this is the truth. And right, I, right hoping that, that I'm alive when people finally like understand what I was trying to do in, in the fullness of time. Cause I, I'm like so um, fond of that movie. But so I spent like about a month in New Orleans working with people down there to make a film. Like that was just three years after Katrina. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah and then like, yeah. And then two years later I find myself in Chicago and I realize that there's this insane link there used to be a like a direct train between the cities but there's still like this psychic and cultural link between the two cities and in new orleans they call chicago up south yeah uh, so it's I, a, well and it's a direct music line too i mean absolutely. i took a course in grad school robert ferris thompson taught on music yeah and african music and its migration from africa through the united states states through time and through migration and you know yes. and that music just coming up through new orleans through the mississippi river you know what i mean and traveling up north i mean you're like hopping around from like great music town to great music town. exactly i the only one i haven't hit yet is miami um um and i'm, I'm working on that i just need some better spanish on it and some french <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, and that, that that was like an epiphany for me to actually really see see how music and life uh, are lived in New Orleans and to understand that influence. And actually, like I, as far as I'm concerned, there's no contemporary music that we hear that we would have without the city of New Orleans. Like 
Yeah, definitely. Rhythm, there's no beat. There's, there's nothing that we would have had without that city, which is a mind-boggling thing to think about what our culture would be without that collision of all those cultures in that particular place. Yeah, and like Louis Armstrong alone, his soloing, oh. what he did to music. Yeah. It's kind of like, in a way, a little bit like Warhol, post-Warhol. Absolutely. Like everything had Warhol in it. Absolutely. And I feel like Louis Armstrong just changed the game forever, you know? Right. I mean, yeah, we could say Buddy Bolden, but yes. I would say New Orleans, like in general, that city just, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what we would be listening to. It's scary to think about it. Yeah, let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) That's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) So, and you, when, what year were you in Skowhegan? 2007? Yeah. So it was around that time, right? Um, I was there. Actually, it's so funny because that's when I met Paul Chan. And that's when he said, I have this idea and I'm wondering if you're interested um, at, in, in Maine at Skowhegan. Um, and then, yeah, I went there the next fall to do the project. Um, yeah. Well, what, uh, what, I mean... I guess this is a silly question, but what sort of motivated you to apply to Skowhegan? Because I, I hadn't gone to art school, and it was really clear to me that I was really, art was where I wanted to be, that yeah. world, and that the film world or industry really wasn't. Like, I I had been teaching in Austin, Texas, and I, um, I, I in the film department and all of my friends and my whole social life revolved around what was going on in with artists and people who taught in the art program and like the museums and art spaces in the city. Yeah. And I really didn't care about the film scene at all. And I thought it was, I actually thought it was ludicrous because after living in LA, their like third coast fantasy that they had at that time was unbearable. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, but I, but I, but I, I didn't go to art school. I was really ignorant. I was like self-educating as fast as I could, reading whatever I could, reading everything I could. If I heard someone talk about something they read, I would read it. Like random, I would just read anything. And I was like, God, I just, I just need some school. And then one of my friends went, she came back and she's like, gosh, if I'd known I could just go to Skowhegan, I would have never bothered with grad school. So oh I, man, that's, that's, it's such like a, uh. It's kind of like grad school and what, nine weeks or something. You right. know what I mean? It, it's such an amazing experience. Although I feel like, as, you know, as someone who went to grad school, like I just, for art, it's such a different experience. It was a great, because I went right after grad school. What year did you go? I was there in 99. Huh? So 1999. So I graduated grad school in 99 and went straight to Skowhegan and going from such like a rigorous grad program to kind of like, hey, we're all out here in the woods just making art together. You know, it's, it's less of this, you know, because they called the, the teachers like artists or, or what, like participants or yeah. something. You know, it wasn't like hierarchical. Participant, right, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it was such an amazing experience. I mean, I didn't know any better. So I took her at her word when she said it was like grad school. Now that I teach in art schools, I know that it wasn't at all, but... You know what it was, was it was the cohort. It was the conversations. Yeah. So 65 people. Community. 20 of them become, like, they're still family. You know what I mean? Definitely. And, and, and they taught me. They taught me. And they, 
they saw stuff that I was doing that I didn't even understand to be uh, of, of interest. And, um, and I'm still like so grateful for them to them for taking me seriously because I wasn't really sure. I, I, I had total imposter syndrome. I, was like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I don't even need a studio. I'm a filmmaker. I need a camera. I need a crew. Like, you know what I mean? I was still yeah. very much a filmmaker and it was really hard for me to be there. Like it was hard for me to make anything or do anything. It was probably a really great test and kind of experience, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it was formative. And like I said, if in a weird way, because I was so unable to really make anything, all I did was annoy my cohorts and hang out <laughs> and ask them what they were doing and get them to talk to me about stuff and ask them really stupid questions and get them to, you know, tell me what they knew. Yeah. Um, so I, I soaked up so much, you know. Yeah, it's funny because if I ever sort of wrap up my experience in Skowhegan to someone, if they ask about it, I just tell them I shared electronic music with Tom Friedman <laughs> and talked to Lorraine O'Grady and uh, John Waters. Oh my God, that gets beyond. Yeah, I, I mean, what? where do you get to do that? <laughs> I know, like some of us are like Peter Doig, like made this too, and he DJed for us. Like we danced like for seven hours straight, this dude DJed for us. And in the barn, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Oh no, it was, I wasn't even in the barn. It was like in that common house thing. Oh, and, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he wouldn't, if, as long as we were dancing, he wouldn't stop spinning. I'll never forget that. Like stuff like that, you're like, oh, and also that was the other thing I learned about a certain spirit of generosity that um, I feel like Linda Earl in particular really um, cultivated in this very Jedi hands-off way. Totally. I, I watched her a lot. And I, I also spent a lot of time watching her. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's kind of like disarmed, like because, you know, in grad school or in school in general, it's so sort of structured and formal and that's sort of disarming. So you have like the community of very serious people, but in an environment that's kind of laid back. And I think really facilitated by the fact that you're like literally making art around cows. Yeah, literally. <laughs> literally. Yeah, crazy. I Although I will say that the summer that I was there, you know, this is 99. This is like pre like internet, internet. Yeah. There's not yeah. really much to do. We all drove to a theater there and saw Blair Witch. Yeah, and they not, went. Not, not the best idea when you're. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's this, the second half. We were kind of frightened for the rest of the time. Oh, so oh, that's total trauma. It was I great though. Truly traumatic. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Have, I would have to go home because I just I saw us on an airplane and then landed and had to sleep in somebody's guest house. Like three nights, I just knew that the family would be out there holding hands. Like I kept right, right. affecting them. I couldn't it, even. I it does affect you, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm easy. I mean, as a city person, I'm kind of scared of woods, anyways. And I was in the studio that was the furthest oh. out there, like way out past the cow pasture. Request that because I was like, "Where's the bathroom?" <laughs> <laughs> the woods. I need to be right by plumbing that's true actually the bathroom wasn't anywhere near there no that's why i didn't mess with those studios i wouldn't even go it would take a lot for me to even go visit people out there i literally that's how lazy i was i only <laughs> know people who were also in studios near the bathroom because i was right. i would walk out there like and i was like does anybody have a beer because that 
Like, I'm so tired now from that height. <laughs> How do you live? How do you do anything out here? So your area of Skowhegan was Manhattan and that was Brooklyn and you were not willing to cross <laughs> totally. the river. Totally. <laughs> I get it. We're like Queens. Like, are you kidding me? No. Yeah, deep, deep in Queens. No chance. <laughs> Have you spent time in New York? Uh, no, I'm always a tourist when I go there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so West Coast. And I, and my first time, I, I didn't go to New York City until I was 30 years old for the first time. And I wow. think it's too late. It's too late to fall in love with a city like New York. You have to go there when you're a baby. Yeah, it's, yeah, it can, it can be a lot. Yeah, by the time I, I visited there, I had already like had my own apartment and um, lived nicely, like not in a closet. And right, yeah. With, bathroom in the kitchen like i just found it appalling you know what i mean yeah i never i never took to it yeah but i love it i mean as a visitor well yeah well so not not to jump too far but um when did the the show with the whitney that's up now when did that kind of materialize you said it kind of snuck up on you yeah it was quick like i uh ran into christy Hiles at a film festival last summer and um, she, I mean, she's Chrissy Isles. She's like a legend. Yeah. But I'd never met her or spoken to her. And she walked up to me and she's like, hello, I'm Chrissy Isles. And I'd like to do a show with you. <laughs> like, oh, that's awesome. Cool. <laughs> and then I kind of like walked away. <laughs> like, hold up. Hold up. Hold up. So I found her at lunch. I was like, did you just say we're doing a show? She's like, yes. That's pretty great. Well, you were in the 17 biennial, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you had some some Whitney experience and that those banner pieces were pretty iconic. Yeah, they they got a lot of people's attention. Yeah. So that was fun. That was I actually really love the Whitney, and I'm not just saying that. I I like um the way the way they treated me and my work like you know, I, they hung those things up very high. And then yeah. when I said, I'd really like to take them down and march them around in the street, they said, okay. And they took them down for me. Let me march them around in the street. And they came back, you know, dirty and beat up. And they were like, they just took some pictures of it, had me sign a form and hung them back up. And I feel like how many institutions would ever allow that? But they were like, well, it's, it's still your work, you know, you yeah. know, it was. And they facilitated this, this, like they opened, they they allowed me to use their institution to make some work that I um I still feel like is some pretty good work. And um, and I just don't know. I mean, institutions always want to do that, but they always can't always do it quite so well and quite so. It felt effortlessly, even though there were dozens of people working behind the scenes to make this happen for me. Yeah, yeah, and none of that was sort of put on put upon me, and I'm I'm very aware of that generosity, um, and I'm not saying that I'm just saying that as an example of a way that an institution can really really support an artist. It was to me that was real, um, and that wasn't just like your show. It, it was a giant group show. You know what I mean? With yeah, a lot of other moving exactly, parts. Exactly, and they still were like, okay, we can do this, and they did it. 
And um, and I, I just, I'll never forget that. And um, and so like it's so now just coming back and then having now even work in their collection is is really meaningful because it's the institution in New York that I've always always like kind of gone to first. I I'm one of those people. You know, people love to hate the Whitney Biennial. Before I was in it, I just I loved I love to love it. I love to hate it. Like I was obsessed with the Biennial. I thought it was like a fascinating experiment, and I totally. Just, love seeing it every two years you know yeah so to be in it was also a dream come true yeah yeah um so a lot of your work obviously like with sun Ra, and uh, there's a lot of musical references to the work i think it ties in conceptually too and you know a lot of the work is um has alice coltrane as you know a participant in a way you know what i mean um yeah. what i obviously She's an amazing musician. Can you talk a little bit about your interest in her and her music and how that enters your work? Yeah, you know, I just started listening to her while I was in Chicago and I had, I was kind of like resolving a lot of this research and work I'd done with around Sun Ra. And I felt like I wanted to spend some time with women musicians and intellectuals and creatives and see what kind of world building they did. And mm -hmm. Alice Coltrane is that person um, yeah. who not only was an incredible keyboardist and composer, but also a world builder. And it was just a really natural progression to move from researching one musician to another who did this kind of world building. Um, and the, the thing I, I was really intrigued with her music was that these these middle period albums after her husband died and she was exploring the Eastern uh, like scale tone and mixing that with like bebop and gospel and making a sound to me like nothing ever I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was so intrigued with that that sound eventually she moved into like kind of pure chanting um like uh, ecstatic music style but still some of the chords and harmonies are very gospel but there's this moment where it is just a mix and it's so interesting and i'm also really intrigued with how african americans in particular seem to really um like we really turn to an appropriate East Asian cultures yeah. with abandon, with a plum, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, shamelessly. Yeah. Um, and um, I miss, I'm interested in how almost all of the artists that I, musicians um, that I'm attracted to had this interest in um, Eastern philosophy, music, culture, religion, and Alice Coltrane, of course, being one of many. Right. Yeah, it's it's just an amazing. I mean, there's nothing. She's an anomaly. And there's no one like her. No. And, and you know, uh, also, the thing that also, to be honest, really got me kind of committed to it was the way in which you know Chicago is a music town, right? It's so totally. And um, I would say, oh yeah, I've been listening to Alice Coltrane, or I think I'm going to do something around Alice Coltrane, and the jazz heads would be like. Ah not really into her not so crazy about her <laughs> really just, i was like how is that possible have you heard this woman play the piano i know she plays the heart but have you heard her on the keyboard have you heard this 
how is this possible? And then I realized she's kind of like the Yoko Ono of jazz, of bebop. Where oh, of like the more straightforward jazz heads? She's blamed, yeah, she's blamed for like turning John Coltrane away from the hard bop into this like um, mushy spiritual fusion vibe that they went into, their cosmic vibes. And, you know, she, he kicked McCoy Tyner off the keyboard and put her on it, and then they were like done. And um, I don't think they listened. Um, meanwhile, she's recording with like Carlos Santana, Charlie Hayden. I mean, uh, oh, Pharaoh uh, Sanders. Yeah. These like beautiful records, you know. Well, not to mention any of those records in question from late, late Coltrane with her. I mean, can you play for me a bad record of those? No. <laughs> you know, they're not bad records. They're you know what I mean? Bad. They're amazing. They're, but they're definitely taking you way away from the bebop and from the, from that, what I now consider classical music because it's like something that's taught and regurgitated by musicians right. um, from that classical jazz. You know, it's like definitely a departure. It's funny though, in retrospect, I feel like when people think of the iconic Coltrane, we're thinking of like, you know, a Love Supreme or the Live in, in Japan record. Mm you know, where it's modal expressions and, and not really thinking about like him playing like the believer with like a tuba player playing right. like hard bop or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? I, I, people, I think they identify with that kind of Eastern tinge of like this kind of modal expressions that, that, yeah, that explore, you know? Yeah. 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 Because that's where he really separated himself from, I think from, you know, bebop and like the, the more rote, conventional starts to that kind of music. I mean, I say conventional in retrospect, it wasn't conventional at the time, but you know, he really sort of blazed a path. And I think she kind of, I think Yoko Ono gets a bad rap too, to oh, be honest. Completely. That's what I mean is like, yeah, blame the woman, right? <laughs> the woman blame for like the sort of corrupting her man. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. But, but people who just weren't, weren't really listening. Yeah. Uh, so I, I started listening and I, so intrigued and I also loved how you could kind of track her journey from the East Coast to the West Coast um, through the music um, and all of her like conversations with other musicians that she had and then her conversations that she continued to have with John Coltrane through the music are also so interesting. Definitely. Yeah. Has she, uh, um, I should know this and I apologize for the dumb question, but that, has she written a book? Yes. Is it good? It's, okay. It must be. She's written like um, at least three books. Um, two of them are like very spiritual, like almost academic tomes about how to be, you know, worshipful. But yeah. there's a book called Monument Eternal, which is one of the most intriguing books I've ever read. And it's about her process of becoming like a godhead, of becoming spiritually enlightened and what mm -hmm. happened to her. And she's just describing the process of like um, advancing through astral planes and leaving her body and learning about how to move through the co cosmos. And she describes, you know, like holding her hand over a burning flame and burning her skin. And, um, you know, her family literally thought she was losing her mind. And, you know, th these stories are true because if you look closely at a video, you watch her play the harp, you can see the burn scars on her hands. Oof, this, this stuff happened. Um, yeah. 
And anyway, it's just, and she describes really matter-of-factly, really quite, quite in a, you know, not, not a hyperbolic language at all, what it's like to leave your body and hear music coming from heavenly instruments. And she describes all these things. And um, I, I just thought it was fantastic. I thought it was that, and not only that, but then I met her students when I went to this um, ashram in Malibu. Uh-huh. I talked with them. They talked about meeting her. They talked about moving to California to study with her. And they they were like, this woman like was in tune, you know. Um, there was a there's a hawk that lived on her property, and they said that, you know, the hawk really missed her, that they would they would talk all the time, they would communicate. They talked about how she welcomed the Chumash people back onto the property because that land had once been theirs. They talked about um, like her kind of sixth sense, like her insight into people and her ability to really see um, what was possible in them before they could. Um, she was dearly loved and missed and and revered, like revered. Yeah. Um, if, and um, I was really like I went to a Sunday service where they. They play um, a sermon. So I got to hear her voice, her talking and doing one of her teachings. And then they played the songs that she wrote in the, um, the songbook that she wrote. And then they kind of argued about how to sing the songs. And I love that. Like someone was saying, Alice would like this, that Taria wouldn't have done that or Swamini wouldn't have done that. And then someone was like, well, Swamini isn't here. And like, it was just amazing. It was like, I love this, like, you know, the, the, I don't know, like she's still so present. Yeah. In the like in that in that place. So yeah. Right, and in the music too. For those who didn't get to meet her, you know. Right. Have you now? Would did you ever? Would you ever think of doing like a documentary on some of these people in this music and? Mm, you, nah. Are documentaries hard or or not fun or? Yeah, I mean that to me, they're very hard and very not fun. I think you like them though. I'll watch them, but I don't actually watch them avidly. Yeah, I watch them if someone is really emphatic and tells me to watch them, and then even then, half I often halfway through will just stop watching. My, I, I think I have a problem with didactics in film because it's not what's interesting to me about film, like using using film to teach me something or advocate, I'd rather read it. And uh, that's just my, right, right. it's going to be information and film because I know how it's made. I frequently lose interest because I see the craft. And oh yeah. Distrust. That's, that's problematic. <laughs> totally distrust what I'm seeing. I can see, I was like, you just cheated. And I'd like to see the footnote for what you just said, or like the way you just attach that text with this image. I'd like to know, I'd like to see that verified. I just, yeah trust it like whereas with the text it's easier for me to track it down so there's a lot of that and also i just find them tedious like i'd rather i'd rather listen i'd, I'd rather do something else <laughs> right well i'll occasionally just pull up a youtube video of like coltrane coltrane live or something and it's yeah. pretty amazing yeah i mean that's i spend a lot of time doing that with my students where i'd rather just try and go find like some sort primary source material without yeah, that, explanation that's or- true context and just say yeah look at the art ensemble of chicago watch this 
90 minute concert. We're just going to watch it. Just yeah. watch. Yeah. Watch the way Thelonious Monk moves when he plays. Exactly. That's like an education in itself, you know, in creativity. Right. And uh, like authentic authorship or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing, well, I don't know. uh, You're based in LA and you did mention Ross G. So are you, I mean, how about Flying Lotus? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, huge fan. I love uh, what. I mean, he's all about all these things that I also love, like horror films and science fiction, and I love the music. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he's doing his thing out here. And Thundercat and all that. I mean, there's so much good music going on. Mm-hmm. There is indeed. Are you able, or do you ever go out and see live music? Almost never. I just haven't had time lately. I've been on um, the grind for a while, but... Uh, I'm guilty as well. It's hard, you know, you get busy and going out at night <laughs> it gets more challenging as the years go by. Yeah. I am um, a friend of mine, Jeff Parker, who's also from Chicago. Oh, I, yeah. Jeff Parker from Tortoise. Yes. He does these wonderful residencies um, at a local bar. It's, if I'm, if I can manage it, I'll go hear him play. Um, just cause it's a, it's again, it's that kind of listening that I really like where you're actually the people who go to that bar, you really got to, you, you're down for the music. And I really yeah. like the vibe. Yeah. So this is in LA? Mm-hmm. Is he based in Chicago still though? No, he lives out here. Oh, he moved out. Yeah. That, uh, the latest, I mean, it's not that new anymore, but that latest uh, record that he released was so good. So good. The one dedicated to his mom. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. With that old, that beautiful cover of that old photograph. Photograph. Oh my gosh. That record is a masterpiece. It is yeah. just beautiful record. Just beautiful. But and yeah. The, yeah, Jeff Parker is super special. Yeah, he's great. You know, when, when I was in a band and, you know, we had a cello player, by the way, it was a cello, bass and drums for our first record. And then we wow. had some instrumentation. But we recorded in Chicago, and our record we recorded at Electrical at Steve Albini's studio was in 2000. And that was kind of like the heyday of, you know, Tortoise and Chicago Underground and, yeah, you know, the Rainbow Room and all that. And that music was so great, you know. There's so much. I, I, I would liken to it or think it's a parallel of kind of like this burgeoning scene of where people were collaborating, kind of like, you know, in the old like bebop days or something where you know, people were joining different bands and playing all this music. And it was such a, it felt like such a fertile time for, for music yeah. there. I feel like that spirit is still there. Like I, that was one of the things that I, I felt so gifted by living in Chicago was I just popped out of nowhere and, and would like, like track someone down, get a phone number and email and be like, hi, I'm Colleen and I'm, I'm working on a film about Sun Ra. And I, I heard you like Sun Ra. Would you like to have coffee? And, and like, I talked to me, I want to do a, a marching band with a flash mob. Um, maybe you're interested. And people would say, yeah, I'll have yeah. with you. I <laughs> that just wouldn't happen in LA. And I, I mean, and these are like really, really tremendous artists. I got right. to, who are like, yeah, I got time for a coffee. <laughs> I was like, only in Chicago. I, I still miss it for the, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it feels like um, very down to earth or, you know, kind of blue collar still, you know. And people are down for like the make what they make and what they do. And so 
if if something's interesting, they're interested, and I love that about the place. Like, um, I, I mean, I did encounter. I would say in LA, things can be more transactional, and I'm not being critical. It's it's the nature of like the game here. Um, yeah. But I felt like there, people were kind of like curious enough to like want to know what I was up to. You know what I mean? Right. Well, do you do you see yourself as now like an LA lifer? Like you're just gonna settle in and that's your place? I love LA. I still love it, even though it's a different city than the one I left. Um, um, but I wouldn't say that. We don't know what's gonna happen with this country. And this past four years with Trump really scared me. Um, Oof, yeah, uh, we're looking at a Supreme Court that could completely undermine my ability to be a free person in this country right so uh i'm i'm just i i'm not gonna say i i have my passport in my bedside table and i'm ready to go when i gotta be ready to go (laughs) yeah hopefully things turn out for the best we shall see so you have the show coming up or wait you have the show up now at the whitney right how long is that up until um i want to say april 27th that sounds good yeah. <laughs> around right. there well yeah. people can go to the whitney website and check it out yeah and um so you have another show opening too uh in san diego museum of art um, nice very special very special opportunity to make a film that responds to one of my favorite paintings it's like this still life painting that was painted they think in the year 1602 and is among one of the first paintings that created this genre that we call still lifes and um uh i find the painting really mysterious and uh juan sanchez cotan who painted it he only painted 12 known there are only 12 known paintings um he's a bit of a mystery himself um and so I'm trying to make a film that responds to his painting, which is difficult because it's, it's, uh, this is a work that has endured for 400 years, basically. So yeah. 420 years, so, you know what I mean? So I just, uh, it's a, it's an interesting challenge about how much or how little to put in a room with this painting, you know? It, yeah, it's, that's, that it's, seems like a heavy, a heavy thing yeah it's been great to think about it though like it's actually really I've, I've been it's like been um this wonderful process of also thinking about painting and like and also thinking about why i love still lifes and i i didn't even think about it but i realized that i love them because when you go to the european wing of museums basically what you're seeing are religious commissions or paintings of the colonizer that's what yeah. you're seeing like paintings that the colonizer commissioned of themselves. So pictures of the colonizer. And then scattered among them are these like plates of cheese or bowls of lemons. And they're just this amazing reprieve from having to look at these people. (laughs) Right. I realized I was like, yeah, I actually never thought of this as art because it's just pictures of people in a pre-photographic world. Like, right. like, and so even if it's painted by Goya, it, I can't, I, all I can think about is Goya was on the grind when he painted this man. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he would have rather been in the studio doing something else besides painting Doña Madalena or whoever. Right. 
But that plate of cheese, they're just they're just trying to figure out how that cheese looks. Right? They're just looking <laughs> at it. They're just yeah. looking at it. It's almost like a purity of it, you know? Uh, and, I, and I didn't even realize that that's what it was about, like how I felt. I was like, oh, I can relate. The plate of cheese, I can relate to. You're yeah. making me see this lemon. Like the way Zermoran paints a lemon, growing up in California, I understand what he's talking about. Right. Sunlight and lemon. And I can smell it even. But the these conquistador paintings, no, thank you, I can't. Yeah, um, I think that's why I always loved Morandi is because it was such a distilled, you know, sort of beauty of like subtlety and in a real. It's about temperature and yeah, you know, it's really distilling things down to just like the paint part of it. Yeah, and time even. And yeah, making decisions about that. So it's been really great to think about that, like pre-photographic pre art and artists and just thinking about them, the artists and like, I'm going to paint this, this bowl of cherries. I'm going yeah. to paint the hell out of this bowl of cherries. Um, and it's going to sit in my studio for the, until I die. No one's going to care. And mm -hmm. I think that there's something amazing about that intensity of looking and, and domestic space and, things that are overlooked as Norman Bryson said. I, I just think it's like, so it's been a joy. It's been a real pleasure to think about that. Now I got to make, finish the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That part. Yeah, how, long, how long will it be roughly? Is it short or? Yeah, it's short. I think it's about a 11 minute loop. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So when did that opens? When? March 14th. March 14th. Man, that's coming up. Yeah. Is there anything else, like, you know, for people listening, like to where they can find your work or find more about you or, mm -hmm. you know, are you a huge social media person? Oh, no, I'm a terrible at Instagram. I, I follow a lot of people, but I have very little to say. Um, but um, I'll be at LACMA this summer. Um, and that's nice. going to be a lot of fun. Um. Houston in the fall. So there's lots of stuff this year to like in different places and parts of the country. That's yeah. a, I'm very grateful that it, it gets to move around. So that's great. Yeah. And you and you enjoy teaching? Yeah, I love CalArts. I, I I love uh the way they figured out how to make a place that is just so creative and you walk down the halls and there's just these little art sprites running around <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. It's just like, I just love it. I love my, my undergrad students blow my mind. Um, which is so it's, it's kind of wonderful to encounter a 19 year old who already is like, yeah, I, this is all I know how to do. This is all I'm going to do. I'm going to, yeah. they figured it out. Yeah. Well, they figured out that, the, this is this is where they're gonna be, and that's, and 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 it might change, but it's sort of wonderful to deal with someone that young and that kind of like open or like um, desirous of just a creative practice, you know. Yeah, that's infectious. That energy too. Yeah, it told, and they, I, I just get a lot out of it. They teach me every every day. Well, they're very lucky to have you there. That's for sure. <laughs> Oh, well, um, well, thanks for taking all the time to talk to me. I'm, I'm very excited that people will get to hear you talking about everything. And 
um, people should definitely check out your show at the Whitney or wherever they are in San Diego or Houston, wherever you got stuff going on. Oh, so nice of you to make the time. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. Many thanks to the Whitney Museum for helping facilitate this conversation with Colleen and I. Uh, Sound of Vision is produced, recorded, and edited by myself. You can find out more about the podcast by going to soundandvisionpodcast.com or you can find images by going to Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or at Alfred Studio. You can also support the podcast by supporting our sponsors, Fredericks Canvas, our new sponsor, Check out their canvases. You can find them online. They're in pretty much every art store. Of course, Golden Paints, as usual. And uh, also New York Studio School. Many thanks to Michael Lovett and to Evan Marion for the music contributions to the podcast. And you can go online and leave a rating or review at iTunes, which also helps spread the word about the podcast and get it out to other people. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Colleen. Go check out our show at the Whitney Museum. And we've got a lot of really great conversations on deck, so make sure you stay tuned. Thank you all. <laughs>